Ladies and gents, my name is Brandon Stover. Welcome to the How to Solve Climate Change course from Plato University. Causes, systems, obstacles, solutions to this global challenge is what you're going to learn here today. When you're ready to learn more skills, join us for free at Plato.University. Let's get started with today's lesson. We'll have our expert guests briefly introduce themselves and their credentials for why they are able to speak to this topic. I served as the EPA Chief of Staff, so the Federal Environmental Protection Agency Chief of Staff during the Clinton administration. So I'm familiar with government regulation on environmental issues, and uh, I'm a law professor at Vanderbilt University, and I work closely with many different types of social scientists who try to understand human behavior and how companies function. And I also served as a partner in one of the largest law firms in the world. So I have a sense of how the private sector works, how government works, and what we know about human and corporate behavior from a social science perspective. And my principal motivation is to deal with the climate problem, which I think is the biggest threat we face. So what I try to do is take those different types of experiences together and come up with ways to fill gaps in what government will do to deal with the climate problem. Can you explain succinctly what carbon labeling is from a first principles perspective? Certainly. So carbon labeling is an effort to try to identify the carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions. We use carbon as a shorthand term for that, that are associated with a product or a service. So for example, if I buy a bar of soap, then the carbon emissions associated with making the products that went into the soap, with transporting the soap, and then if the label is effective, also with its use and disposal would all be part of what would be put into a carbon label. So a carbon label, if it's accurate, reflects the amount of greenhouse gas emissions associated with the production, transport, use and disposal of a product or of a service as well. So flying would be an example where you could, you could carbon label uh, airplane tickets as well. And why would these carbon labels help to solve the climate change problem? Many people think that for a carbon label to be effective, it has to change consumer behavior. So in other words, when someone comes into a store and they see two different products and one has a little bit lower carbon footprint, that they would have to buy the lower carbon footprint product for the carbon label to matter. But that's not correct. That's a very incomplete understanding. It's an understandable one because it's a consumer label in many cases. Mm -hmm. But there are deep other reasons why carbon labeling can have very real effects. And a first one is that Research shows that when a company starts feeling pressure to carbon label its products, it often then has to quantify its carbon emissions in order to carbon label. And when it does that, it finds inefficiencies in its manufacturing. So greenhouse gas emissions often come from using fossil fuels to produce or transport goods. An example would be a potato chip manufacturer that was pressed to carbon label its, its potato chips. And when it did that, it found it was buying the potato chips by the pound. So farmers are, were digging the potatoes, as it's called, when they were wet, so they were heavy, and they were humidifying the warehouses, and they're having to transport heavy potatoes. So a simple thing like the metric you use to buy the potatoes can have a big effect on the carbon footprint of the potatoes, but you don't even know that if you don't start looking for the carbon emissions. And when you do, you find efficiencies that weren't otherwise there. So that's, to me a very important and easily overlooked part of why labeling matters for greenhouse gas emissions reductions. A second reason is that many companies, I believe, are buying reputational insurance. So an example would be 
a major um, restaurant that many of your students would know quite a bit about actually uses the Marine Stewardship Council labeling for all of its seafood products, uh, but it doesn't put that on the menu. And so you might say, well, if consumers are driving this, why aren't those little labels on the menu? Because that would drive consumer behavior. I think the reason, and there's some research on this, but not very much, but I think the reason is that what that restaurant is really trying to do is to do the right thing now, not advocate that it's doing the right thing because it's worried about sticking its neck out. But then if they get criticized for selling unsustainable seafood, they can then at that point disclose that all the seafood that they sell has this Marine Stewardship Council label associated with it. So essentially, they're buying insurance or a defense against reputation campaigns, naming and shaming campaigns. And I think that's an important piece of the puzzle, too. Another one that you wouldn't think of so much is that employee morale and recruitment and retention matter a lot for companies. And so carbon labeling products and driving down the carbon emissions associated with products then can help companies recruit and retain employees. And I think that's another important reason. And now, after all those other reasons, we get to the one everyone thinks is the dominant reason, which is consumer choices. And the research shows that people in the U.S. have some preference for green goods or lower carbon goods, but not a great deal of preference. In Europe, it's much stronger. So in Europe, you're much more likely to get a consumer to buy a low carbon good versus another good for the same price than you would in the United States. But it does matter. And often, for example, in the food industry, profit margins are very thin, one or 2% in some cases. So a very small change in consumer behavior can really matter to the profitability of a company. So consumer behavior does matter. And when you put together all those different reasons, that says something very important about how we should design the labels that we use. Because if it's just about consumer behavior, we want them to be super simple. And sometimes we call this an ordinal label. It looks like a stoplight. Red is bad, yellow maybe, uh, green is good. And we can do that with carbon labeling too. We can have a very simple label. And if what you want to do is change the way people buy products in grocery stores or in electronic stores or something like that, you want that kind of simple label. Those are the most effective. But if the goal is also to change corporate behavior, even when customers don't respond so much, then probably what you want to do is combine that simple ordinal stoplight type label with an actual quantification. That is 2.2 pounds of greenhouse gases are associated with this product. Why do you want to do that? You want to do that because to force the calculation of the greenhouse gas emissions, then allows or induces the company to find those efficiencies that we talked about earlier. So a label that both has the quantification and the ordinal stoplight type message will appeal both to the consumer and to the corporate manager who is trying to decide which mix of products to offer to consumers and trying to look for efficiencies. Can you, Steelman, the other side of this, of why carbon labels may not work or where they fall short? Sure, absolutely. And one concern that we hear all the time in the media is if we focus on individual actions, that we will undercut actions against corporations or actions that government needs to do. And a recent study just said that there's no empirical support for that, literally none. Um, but it is very widespread. When I give talks on this topic, it's the first question students and, and even professors ask in many cases, because some of the leading people who are climate advocates are saying this over and over again in public books and in social media. But literally, there is no 
empirical support, meaning no data-driven scientific support for the idea that it's going to undercut actions by companies and, and, and by governments as well. But, but nevertheless, there is a concern out there that by focusing on individual carbon footprints or product carbon footprints, what we will do is induce people to think that their own behavior is all that needs to change and that they don't need to put pressure on companies and governments to change their behavior. And I think that's certainly not true. Uh, companies need to do the same thing that they, or, or individuals need to do the same thing with companies and with government. And one of the best ways to induce individual behavior change is to do it in ways that increase support for getting others to act the way you do. You know, one of the things we think about often in this area is that we think we're making our own choices all the time, but often what we're really doing, if you really look at the good social science research, is we're just doing what everyone else is doing. And so interestingly enough, for example, if you turn out the lights when you leave a bathroom, it's more likely that the next person who comes out of the bathroom will turn off the lights when they leave as well. We are just creatures of habit, and we are creatures who want to do what everyone else around us is doing. So a risk is that we could induce individual behavior change through things like carbon labeling, and that would undercut supports for corporation-based or government-based work. And, and there is some risk that I think we can deal with that through some of these other measures. What's one way that, that we could undercut support for government? Well, an example would be if we, we provoke what's called moral licensing. So one way we might get people to change behavior is to use a label that shames people. That somehow tells them they're bad if they're not doing something uh, about reducing their carbon footprint. And that has been shown to have uh, a, a negative spillover effect, it's called. In other words, when someone feels morally shamed by something, then when they actually respond by doing the right thing, they now feel morally licensed to do a bad thing. So their next behavior is often not what we want. So you do a small little pro thing, and then your next behavior is to go out and do something that uses a lot more carbon emissions by a big SUV or whatever it might be. So we have to be careful in the way we design labels and the way we design the public information campaigns associated with them to make sure that we don't induce behavior change just by shaming, because that does lead to moral licensing, which then leads to what we call negative spillover effects. So those are concerns. Another concern, I suppose, would be that we would devote resources to carbon labeling that could otherwise be devoted to advocating for government policy change or corporate policy change. Again, I'm not so worried about that. I don't think that's a zero-sum game. There's an enormous amount of money being spent on government advocacy that's not making the effect we might want. And it's also the case that when companies feel pressure to reduce their emissions because they have to carbon label their products, they then have an incentive to get other companies to have to be uh, reducing their carbon emissions too, which then makes them more likely to uh, lobby for government restrictions so that others have to bear those costs. It's called raising rivals' costs in economics. Mm -hmm. So that's another reason why we should be worried. Maybe it will devote resources away from government regulation. But, but I think the best thinking on that is that if it's well done, it, it won't do so. Of these parties that you've started to list, the consumers, like government businesses, who is going to benefit the most from carbon labels being put in as a solution and who might be harmed the most? That's interesting. I'd have to think hard to think about who would be harmed. I guess the parties who would be harmed would be the shareholders and lenders and managers and employees 
of companies that have more carbon intensive products than other companies in their same sector. So if you are an inefficient or high carbon emitting food company, or if you're a petroleum company or a coal fired utility, for example, then labeling your product, if consumers have the ability to do something else, to shop elsewhere, so to speak, then that will cause you to sell less of your product. And you might have to shut down, lose share value or fire your employees. That's a real cost. And we shouldn't be naive. I think there are going to be real disruptions that will occur from transitioning the economy to a low carbon economy. I believe it's worth it um, because I, I believe that climate change is going to disrupt both the natural environment and the political environment for 500 generations. And I think that's the, the best science right now. So I think it's worth some disruption, but we shouldn't. We shouldn't be naive. There will, there will be companies that will not perform as well uh, when their products are carbon labeled. So I think those are probably the, the biggest parties who will be harmed in that kind of setting. It's hard for me to think of another sector of society that would be particularly harmed by carbon labeling. Can you describe the, the process of how this carbon is measured and then what would be put onto a label and how that works from the beginning of the measuring the process to the consumer actually seeing it or the business seeing a readout of those things? That's a great question. And I'm not an engineer, so I, I'm, I'm not an expert on the very precise aspects of it, although I do work with engineers and economists and accountants who, who work on the, the articulation of what those emissions might be. Often we think of that as life cycle analysis when it's done well, and it's done often by environmental engineers, by environmental policy experts, sometimes by economists. And the idea is to try to start from the beginning of the extraction of the resource from the environment, if it's a physical good, all the way through the processing of that material, its transport, its use, and its disposal, and to assess the greenhouse gas emissions that arise from every one of those steps in the process. And that's pretty easy when it comes to, let's say, using electricity to make aluminum, which uses a lot of electricity, you convert bauxite into aluminum. And we can pretty precisely calculate the amount of fossil fuels that were used to produce the electricity that is used to convert the bauxite into aluminum. If it's coal, it's going to be a lot higher than if it's natural gas, which will be a lot higher than if it's wind or solar, or hydro or something of that nature. So. There are, there are very simple ways to convert the amount of carbon associated with the amount of electricity used into the carbon associated with that product. And then you can do the same thing with the transport of the product. If it's transported by ship or truck or airplane, you can calculate given lots of different data that are out there, what the carbon emissions are associated with all that. I think the hardest effort in many cases arises when Let's say you're Unilever, a really big uh, retail products company, and you have multiple different suppliers for the same product in multiple places around the world. So you may be buying palm oil or widgets of some sort, and you may have 50 different suppliers around the world. And what consumers want is one consistent label, right? And you want that to be able to communicate, but it may be very hard to figure out, well, do we use the average across all these products? Do we use a different number every time we have a slight difference in, in what this, the transport distance was or the transport mode or the, the location of the manufacturer of the product? And so those are the kind of things that 
people will dive into in much greater detail. The, the best tool for your students to use is the World Resources Institute, World Business Council on Sustainable Development Greenhouse Gas Inventory. And they can simply Google that. And if you take a more detailed class on how to do life cycle ass- assessment, you start with that document and then you dive into more specific guidances about how to make calculations in different areas. That's a private standard developed by uh, a private NGO, a non-governmental organization, and a business association trying to regularize the process of accounting for carbon emissions around the world. And that's become the dominant standard. So I point everyone to that standard when they're trying to think about how do we do this. And then if your students are interested in becoming experts on this, taking classes on life cycle assessment, LCA, as it's called, would be a great idea. Are there any other resources, two or three best resources to learn about carbon labeling in terms of climate change? Luckily, there are numerous papers on that, and many of them are in the public realm as well. I have a team of co-authors, uh, and we've published uh, several pieces in Nature Climate Change. And those pieces, uh, you can Google and, and find them on the author's websites in many cases or at the journal itself. In addition to that, I think that looking for various different environmental groups' websites can be quite helpful as well. One of the groups that is focusing a lot on individual behavior and has helpful information across multiple different topics like carbon labeling is called RARE, R-A-R-E. And I think Googling their site is a nice entry point into um, into finding more information about carbon labeling. I manage something called the Climate Change Research Network, and we try to make documents available uh, related to carbon labeling along with other topics there. It's not always possible as an academic to stay up to date, so people may not find everything they want. But luckily, there is a great deal of literature out there. Another place I would look is the Carbon Trust, which is in the UK, and they've done some leading work and and, and run very sophisticated and accessible websites. You mentioned uh, life cycle analysis earlier. Are there any other top skills that you think students who are passionate about this particular problem uh, should focus on? Yes, I think understanding a little bit of economics is important. You want to understand how much does it cost to label something and uh, why would a company do this? And how would a company profit from doing that? So I think understanding economics is a piece of the puzzle and you don't have to be a PhD economist to have a sense for what is likely to draw as corporate or frankly university or, or a labor union or other decision making. Understanding the the economics of, of organizations helps a lot. Understanding organizational behavior. There are often classes in organizational behavior is very useful. Why does an organization function the way it does? Is there a separation between who has responsibility for something and who has the control over it? Because sometimes decisions don't get made because the party that has responsibility to do something doesn't have the control necessary or vice versa. So I think organizational behavior is really useful as well. Engineering is useful to try to understand the design of the systems that can increase or decrease the carbon associated with products. Law and policy is useful. In in Europe and and Japan, there are some requirements for carbon labeling. In the U.S., we don't have government requirements for carbon labeling. We do have government requirements for the disclosure of emissions from industrial facilities over 25,000 metric tons a year, but we don't have a requirement to carbon label at the federal level specific products. We do have uh, a voluntary program 
called Energy Star, which many of you probably have seen in stores. And that is not obligatory. So you don't get into legal trouble if you fail to do so as a company. But many companies have found it to be in their interest and consumers love the Energy Star program. It's very influential. And then many companies and local governments and state governments then require the purchase of goods by the government or the company that have an Energy Star label. And that drives a lot of emissions reductions and energy efficiency in the U.S. So understanding law and policy, I think, is quite helpful. And understanding that law and policy don't just mean federal statutes, regulations, and the enforcement of those regulations. We also need to understand supply chain contracting requirements. Mm -hmm. So a company like Walmart has, uh, whether you like Walmart or don't like Walmart, they've committed to a billion tons of greenhouse gas emissions reductions um, by 2030, which is an amount equal to the annual emissions of Germany, which is the sixth largest country in the world. And how are they getting those emissions reductions? They're not getting them by being regulated by government. They're getting them by imposing requirements on their suppliers. And they have tens of thousands of suppliers around the world. And that creates a network of private contractual requirements to reduce carbon emissions around the world. And now we create a whole system of governance, which is much like what we were taught about public governance in seventh grade, but it doesn't appear in many textbooks and so forth. So I think understanding law and policy as well and understanding it as a form of governance and not just a very narrow view about either government does a regulatory step or nothing happens. I think if we care a lot about climate change, we need to, in all these disciplines, be open-minded about new solutions. Any final recommendations for the audience? I would just say that it's critical to understand that there is no panacea or silver bullet for the climate problem. Max Boykoff at the University of Colorado has described the solution as silver buckshot, not a silver bullet. And I work a lot in what we call wedges, which is emissions reductions that can achieve a billion tons of emissions reductions within a decade, but won't solve the whole problem. We need a dozen or 15 or more wedges to get from here to any reasonable climate target. So I think that being motivated to look for those solutions that are viable, that can happen promptly and will make a real difference, will make for a very satisfying career. And getting out of your narrow mental model and thinking broadly is, is the best thing that you can do. The 9-11 Commission when it studied why we had the 9-11 event, said it wasn't a lack of data or expertise, it was a failure of imagination. So I would say across all of your different courses, people need to, to step outside of the constrained mental model that so many of us function in and think creatively and critically. And if you do that, you'll come up with solutions and have a very happy and successful career. To practice skills related to this topic, conduct a life cycle analysis of a product you use regularly, estimate the carbon and other greenhouse gases emitted in the production and distribution of that product, consider writing a letter to that company requesting or their use of carbon labels, explain the importance of transparency in carbon emissions and consumer choices. Thank you for taking the How to Solve Climate Change course. If you want to learn the skills to solve this global challenge, join us for free at Plato.University for exclusive content, extra resources, and actionable exercises with every lesson. This course was produced by Plato University, where students turn passions into purpose and learn skills to change the world. Learn more at Plato.University. <laughs>